open because we're going to spend the next 30 minutes here in this passage. And I want you to check to make sure that what I'm saying agrees with what God Himself says in His holy Word. And you know, one of the great problems of living in a world like ours where everyone is free to do whatever they want just so long as they don't bother anyone else, one of the difficult things about living in this culture is that it's so very hard to make value judgments about what is good and worthy. When there's no objective standard of right and wrong, good and evil, worthy or wicked, then pretty much all you're left with is, is do whatever you want as long as you're true to yourself. As long as you live a life of authenticity and respect to who you truly are, then you don't hurt anyone else, then don't worry. Be happy. And you can know that your life is good and valuable and worthy of everyone's respect and, and tolerance. Everyone's free to do and to think and feel and be whatever is right in their own eyes. And it isn't surprising, is it, that in this sort of a culture, like the one that we live in today, most of the famous people are entertainers and celebrities. Because the culture thinks, if only we were like that, then we could truly be free to be ourselves. We could do whatever we want buy whatever we want, go wherever we want, hang out with whomever we wanted. A culture such as that might even end up making a celebrity or an entertainer their president. It can be hard, can't it, living in a culture like that to make judgments about a worthy life. Just try to say that someone is living a life that is unworthy. And get ready for the response. Oh, you don't know me. You can't judge me. Who are you to say I'm living in an unworthy way? And suddenly lives of, of character and value and worth mean whatever you want them to mean. Whatever you want them to look like. But not if you're a Christian. A Christian, by definition, is a person who makes distinctions and declarations about what is good and valuable and worthy because our God has objective standards. And He declares what is good and right and just and worthy. He says it. And that settles it. And we, as His people, are called to know His standards and to conform ourselves to them. And if Pastor Alvis had kept reading here in Philippians 2, just a couple more verses, we would have read in verses 12 and 13 these words, "...work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." Or if you went back up to verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christians are people in whom God has started a work. 
God is at work in us. But also, Christians are people who are at work in themselves. We are working out our salvation. Christians are those whom God has called to live worthy lives in obedience to Him. And that's what the Apostle Paul says right here at the beginning of our passage. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul tells the church that he loved at Philippi, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This word gospel, many of you will know, is a Greek word, euangelion. It means good news. News that's meant to be heralded and declared. News particularly when a new king has taken a throne and it's to be heralded and declared this new kingship. And Paul says that as Christians, we are those who are followers of the true king, Jesus Christ. We've submitted ourselves to his rule and authority in our lives. Over our lives, He is our King. We've submitted ourselves to the Gospel of Christ. The good news of King Jesus. And if Jesus is your King, then it only makes sense that your life should reflect it. And the problem in our culture, what we see in the world all around us, is what happens when individual people make themselves king. The gospel of our world is this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jeff. That's the gospel that the world tells me is good news. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jeff. And I say to myself, I can do that. I'm good at that. I don't even have to try. It just happens. But it never works. We can't rule ourselves. We can't rule our lives. We make a mess of everything we touch. We ruin every relationship in our own strength. And we're too afraid to answer the only question that really matters, that gnaws at the back of our conscience. How is this working out for me? No, a Christian is simply someone who submits themselves completely, no reservations, to the gospel good news of Jesus Christ. Repentance means turning away from the gospel of self, the kingship of self, and humbly accepting the kingship of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And once we become followers of King Jesus, we're then called to live a life that's worthy to be called Christian. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of of Christ. And so as Christians, we go against our culture and we say that there is such a thing as a worthy life. There is such a thing as dishonoring the name by which you are called as Christian. There is such a thing as dishonoring the Lord in the way that we act and think and live. 
What does the worthy life look like? Its answer is all over the pages of of the Bible. From beginning to end, God is, is telling us this is the worthy life. But we get a very clear picture, don't we, in the passage from Philippians that was just read for us this morning. It says quite clearly that a worthy life, a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is marked by at least four things. Standing firm, being united, humility, and service. So if you like practical sermons, this is the best sermon you're ever going to hear. If you want a sermon that you can apply to your very own life without me having to do it to your specific situation, then you have it this morning. Because if you are here, and we all should be asking ourselves this question, and we should all be eager to live a life worthy of the gospel, we should say, what does that look like? Can I look myself in the eye, in the mirror, in my eye, and say, am I living a life worthy to be called Christian, four simple things, stand firm, be united, be humble, be a servant. So let's look at this passage with the desire that we would go from this place eager to live lives worthy of the gospel. It's not just these four things, is it? But four will probably be enough for the coming weeks. A worthy life contains at least these Four. And we begin with steadfastness or standing firm, which seems like it might be worthy mark number one for Paul. If you look back at uh, chapter 1, verse 27, see, do you agree? I think this might be perhaps the, the, the number one thing for him, to these people at least. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. And Paul's writing this letter from, from prison. And he tells them in, in chapter 1, he's not sure whether he's going to live or, or die. He says, to live is Christ. To die is gain. He's not sure whether he will ever see these people Again, he might see them. He might only receive a report about them. Either way, what does he want from them? He wants a worthy life. And he wants to know that they are standing firm. Paul was in prison because he was a Christian. He would die because he was a Christian. Many of you will know that when Paul first visited Philippi, it's recorded in Acts 16, he was thrown into prison there. And if you look at verses 28 to to 30 of Philippians 1, Paul makes it clear that the Philippians aren't going to escape the suffering that Paul experienced as well. Opponents are going to try to, to frighten, to intimidate them. In verse 28, it's very clearly indicated. But just as they had heard... Or maybe they had even known Paul and seen it. They had heard that Paul was steadfast when he was in Philippi. He and Silas singing hymns in prison at night. And the jailer miraculously 
saved and the gospel proclaimed and people saw the worthy lives of these men who remained steadfast in obedience to Christ. So too, He wants this church, when the opposition comes to them, to remain steadfast to the truth of of the gospel. But Paul even goes so far as to say that this suffering, this opposition has been granted to them by God. Look at verses 29 to 30. I'm not making it up. It's what the Bible, Bible says. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, that's good news, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And Paul is is saying that suffering and, and struggle and conflict in the world is actually a mark of a true Christian living a worthy life in the world. The world murdered our Savior. The world murdered His first disciples. The world hates our King. And it will hate you if you serve Him wholeheartedly in a worthy way. But Christ told His disciples, and He tells us, John 16.33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so the gospel good news for you this morning is that you, if you are a follower of King Jesus, Suffering and opposition and persecution is coming your way. The world will not be your friend. Your faith in Christ will bring you into conflict with this godless world. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so my dear Christian friend, may you live a worthy life, standing firm, being steadfast in the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be frightened by your opponents, whoever they may be, family, friends, culture, media. Trust Christ. Follow Christ and join with the saints throughout the ages who have stood firm in their faith. Every Christian who wants to live a life worthy of the gospel must be steadfast and stand firm. But as Matt mentioned earlier, it's striking to see that one of the hallmarks of a worthy life is not just this steadfastness, but a unity. And Paul expects that Christians don't do this Alone. If you look at verse 27 of chapter 1 again, you see clearly that Paul is is talking to a group of people. He's talking to the church at Philippi. There's to do this together. Stand firm, Christians. Stand firm, church. Don't do it individually. Do it together. And so these verses make it very clear that the worthy life isn't a solo project. You must do it together with other Christians. In fact, 
verse 29 tells us that it's the reality of the church united, standing firm in the face of opposition, that becomes a clear sign to the opponents of Christ's church that they are doomed to destruction. Notice the corporate language that Paul uses there beginning in verse 27. I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the word spirit, uh, the word yeah, the word spirit there is most likely a reference to the, to the Holy Spirit who gives new life to every Christian. He knits us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one in the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ dwells in us and among us. And so we stand firm in one Spirit to, together against the opponents of our Lord. But we also stand firm, Paul says, in one mind. And this word translated mind is different from the one that will occur later in our passage. It's, it's psyche in, in Greek, and it, uh, it means the, the sphere of our affections, the things we love and our moral energies. And so together as Christians, as it relates to our affections and our moral energy, we're to stand firm. Side by side, united for the faith of the gospel. And so we love the things that God loves. We hate the things that He hates. We do take moral positions that accord with His truth and His teaching in His holy word, no matter the winds of culture. But we do it together as Christians in conversation with other Christians We find a source of of strength and encouragement from our brothers and sisters as we labor and struggle and wrestle together side by side. We share our victories. We share our joys and our disappointments. And as we do this, united together, standing firm, there's a profound significance and, and result. I alluded to it. It's there in verse 28. This is a clear sign, Paul says, of the destruction of the unbelieving world. And also a clear sign to Christians of our salvation. And so, if you desire to live a worthy life, truly following Christ in a hostile world, it should bring conviction to those who watch you. Like the centurion, as he stood at the foot of the cross, watching the Son of God die and suffer, he proclaimed, surely this is the Son of God. And church history is full of stories of the opponents of Christ's church watching godly men and women die steadfast in their faith, united with Christians around them. And the world looks at them and says, see how they live, see how they love. See how devoted they are to Christ. Their salt, their light in this world. They're undaunted by any opposition that may come as they take a convincing, convicting stand and presence in this world. But Paul also tells us that this experience of unity and suffering and standing firm in the midst of it also works a, a confidence in the Christian life. And so as you stand unafraid, 
unwavering in the midst of persecution, you find that God is actually deepening the roots of your faith. He's thickening the fiber of your your spiritual soul. We see that God so clearly is leading us and, and guiding us by His Spirit. He's filling us moment by moment, circumstance by circumstance, with faith and, and hope and, and love. And what we find is, is that in those times of opposition, the reality of the Gospel is proving true in our lives. We begin in a way that we never could even imagine to pray for those who persecute us to forgive those who wrong us and to take bold and radical steps of faith which demand that we trust not ourselves, but God our Lord completely. And suddenly you find that this is the very means by which God reassures you of your salvation, of His grace and mercy in your life. And this theme of unity is so central to what a worthy life looks like that Paul picks it up again in chapter 2, verse 2. But now Paul's focus is a bit different. I read a Bible scholar this week um, who, who summarized it like this. Unity is not just a useful weapon against the world. That's what he said there in chapter 1. I lost my place. But rather, it belongs to the very essence of Christian life. For it is the way in which Christians display outwardly what the gospel is and means to them. Unity is the gospel's hallmark. Unity is the gospel's hallmark. And that's exactly right. And that's why Paul says that nothing would give him more joy. He says it would complete his joy if he knew that Christians were standing together united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see that there in verse 2 of chapter 2? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And the word mind that Paul uses here is is different from the one we saw in in chapter 1, verse 27. Here, the word is phroneo, and it it means quite simply what you might think it to mean. It means our thoughts and our opinions. And so Paul says that Christians are to be united in the things that they think about, the opinions that they have, the things that we love are to be agreed on upon amongst Christians. He uses this word twice in verse 2. Have this mind, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. And, And you could literally translate this verse saying, think the same thing, thinking the one thing. And this is unity regarding the gospel of of Christ, the central truths of the Christian faith. It doesn't mean that Christians need to believe the exact same thing about everything. There is great freedom for personality and preference as Christians. The unity that Paul is after is not 
uniformity. But at the heart of the Christian message, there is a unity about the truths which we believe and which are non-negotiable. You could take the, the Apostle Creed, the Apostles' Creed or the, the Nicene Creed, perhaps as, as simple statements of, of, of united truth of, of the gospel, the one-mindedness that we're called to have as the church of Jesus Christ. But on non-essential issues, and this is where things do get a little messy, in the practical application of how we live out the Christian life, there will always be differences of opinions and preferences among Christians in a room this big. And that, I believe, is one of the most wonderful things about being a Christian. Is that I look out into this room and I don't see a lot of Jeffs. I don't see any others. Because if there were any others of you, this place would be even... It wouldn't be a very enjoyable place with two of me. And if this whole room were full of me, it'd be like the Matrix. One of the joys of the Christian life is experiencing the way in which the love of God and the truth of Christ and the moving of the Spirit is poured out into the lives of His people whom He's created to be different. Different gifts, different strengths, different joys. He's wired us differently and He uses all of us to display His glory, His redeeming work to the world. If you want to live a worthy life as a Christian, then let us work very hard to be united around the core central truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then, the last two points, and we are going to fly through them, we need humility and service. And Paul continues his portrait of the worthy life there in verses 3 and 4 with these two characteristics. And someone might want to argue that this is simply two ways that unity of mind is, is worked out. And that might be. They might be very interconnected. Have unity of mind, therefore you must be humble and serve one another. And if you look down at verse 5, that word mind occurs again as Paul goes on to give the supreme example of what humility and service look like in the life of Christ Jesus our Lord. So perhaps these shouldn't be separate. Perhaps they are what true unity looks like in a church. Humility and, and servant-heartedness. Regardless, if you want to live a life worthy of the gospel, then these two qualities must mark you out. You must be humble. And you must be a servant. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Paul makes this very clear. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now these verses don't teach that it is wrong to look to your own interests, to care for your own needs and the needs of those around you. Paul's saying it's wrong to look only to your own interests or to look to your own interests with selfish ambition, self-regard, or, or a proud desire to put yourself first. We all have to fight against this desire, don't we? 
It isn't even really a desire. It's just your normal default setting as a human to look out for ourselves first. But the Bible teaches us that Christian harmony and unity comes about when in humility and with the desire to serve, we count others more significant than us and worthy of our service, our concern, and our care. Pride and selfishness are right at the heart of all sin and unbelief. It destroyed the devil and ruined our first parents. And it continues to destroy people and churches. But the gospel good news tells us that there is a man, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every way that you and I are, but he never gave in to pride or selfishness in a single thought or attitude or deed. He lived the life that you and I should have lived but didn't, and they nailed him to a cross for it. And yet he willingly went because he knew that his death would be the atoning sacrifice for all who would look to him in faith. He died our death. In our place condemned he stood, as we sang earlier. But then he rose again triumphant from the grave, giving all of us hope that one day, though we die in the body, we too will be resurrected like Christ to dwell on a new earth and new bodies for all eternity. But, then, but until then, until the glorious return of Christ, we're to have the mind of Christ. We are to humbly and sacrificially look to the needs of others just as He did. And as we close this morning, we have a glorious picture of the work of Christ. And we could easily spend another hour on these verses, but we're out of time. And so all we can do is read them. But as we do, let's bear in mind all that has come before these verses. The goal of a worthy life, a life of steadfast obedience in the face of suffering, unity around a single message and purpose, humility and service, they all find their beginning and their culmination in Christ Jesus. To live is Christ. Our faith and our hope are in Him. His life, His work, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His glorious return. He is our head. He is our example. He is our teacher. We humbly follow the humble King. We join together as His disciples, seeking to be His body on this earth. His life is the most worthy life ever lived. And all who call upon Him and bear the name Christian are called to follow Him and to live as he lived. And so I close by simply reading chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, this glorious picture of Jesus Christ, our King. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Father, we proclaim that these are the truths upon which we stand. 
that you have exalted Jesus Christ to be King of this world. And you've called us to bow our knee and humble our hearts and live in obedience to His example and His command. And so, Father, we thank You that You've given us Your Spirit, that He helps us in this great and high calling. Would You move us out from this place, eager, expectant, to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.